Hello, and welcome back to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Mark and Tony and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Hello, Father Michael. It is a delight to be back with you today. Why don't you tell everyone out there where they can find us online and on social media? Outstanding. Yes, thank you. And always a pleasure. Uh, you can find us online. Anchor FM is our main hosting site that shares out over Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, I, are we on iTunes? Uh, I, I, yes. Okay, so I, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. We get a lot of a lot of listeners off Spotify and, of course, on social media at On the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And, of course, on our Facebook page, we also do share related com- content. And uh, that is where we've gotten a lot of our messages and comments. So do keep sending your thoughts and ideas in, and we will keep this a dialogue rather than just a monologue. So thank you. And if you like what you see here, please share it out. Indeed. Uh, yeah, do please like and share. It means a lot uh, to us and can hopefully make uh, a force multiplier uh, in of you. Uh, so today, Father Michael, we are going to talk about, uh, it, it's how I'm going to phrase this may sound very strange at first, but believe me, uh, by God's grace, by the end of this uh, podcast, it will, it will make sense. But that we look like the demons that we entertain. Uh, we look like the demons that oppress us or possess us, right? Um, and this this idea, uh, not idea, but this reality came into my life recently with with uh, remembrance of a street person that I had met once, and then also, like we mentioned in the last podcast, sitting down and watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy with my children. Um, you know, I, I realized that in that movie, Smeagol is a, a very human person, especially when he becomes Gollum. And the idea of, or not the idea, but the, the depiction that Tolkien, the token depiction that he gives, right, Father Michael? Um, the, the depiction that he gives of, of Smeagol becoming Gollum and Gollum driving Smeagol into the mountains and becoming hairless and crouching and no longer eating vegetables, but eating only raw fish. And eventually Smeagol wasn't Smeagol anymore. He was Gollum. And you see this inner conflict and you see these dialogues between the two of them, uh, the, the former person and now the new person completely torn in two by the presence of this malevolent one, right? Um, And there is biblical evidence for this being a reality too. We see the demoniac in the wilderness. Father uh, Michael will uh, talk about uh, some instances in Genesis, and then we can move on to uh, our own personal real-life experience with this in our own lives and people that we, we know. But I would appreciate your input on this, Father Michael. Uh, yeah, so I think one of the things that happens, one of the things that when the devil looks at humanity that he wants to twist, it's it, it's the fact that we are the image and likeness of God. We image God. That's what we're made to do and be as human beings. Um, and the devil can't fight God. But what he can do is he can strike at the uh, at the image. So you think about... Um, you know, if you think about if you had emissaries out in a foreign land, I mean, maybe, you, you know, you don't have the arms and, and equipment to get to the country you want to attack, but you can attack their embassy. And an attack on the embassy is the same thing as an attack on, uh, on the country itself. I mean, that's, that's just bottom line. So one of the ways the devil does that is you twist human beings by twisting human beings to not behave as human beings by twisting them through sin to image you and not God. Um, It's really an attack on God. It's really an attack saying like, Hey, this is, this is your image. This is your likeness. This is, I I mean, you know, the same way an attack on the embassy is an attack on uh, the country. So one of the, the, the first effect we see of sin within scripture is to make the human being 
possessed by it, um, imitate it. And that's actually pretty clear. So one of the things I, I, I'm starting to hate going back to the story so much because I reference it so often, I feel like I'm going to get a few eye rolls, but I, I'm going to have to do it. And that is, uh, once again, the story of Cain and Abel. You know, when God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door, um, some of our regulars know that the word there isn't crouching, it's robles, which was a type of crouching demon. So the robles, or what that means is a croucher. So he says sin is a croucher at the door. Uh, and the robles was a type of Akkadian demon that was sought to crouch and lurk in doorways and corners and then pounce out at its prey. So it would pounce upon you unsuspecting. And that's what it was. So God uses this imagery um, and says sin is a croucher at the door. And it's crouching for you. It's desirous for you. But you can overcome it. Well, Cain doesn't overcome it. Then how does that sin play out? Well, Cain crouches and pounces. He, they, he goes out into the field with Abel and unsuspecting pounces upon his brother and the first murder is committed. So now suddenly Cain behaves as his croucher. Or you have uh, the prophet Jonah. Jonah had a sin, uh, as we all do, right? Like he was—he did not feel he was—he was—he was cold and detached. He did not feel that the people of Nineveh deserved the warning of their impending doom. They did not deserve God's mercy. So he got on a boat to try to flee, and he was perfectly okay with other people suffering and dying as long as it didn't affect him. And then suddenly the boat is in a great storm. Now suddenly, not only is there impending disaster, um, but he's directly involved. And the only way to get mercy for these innocent people is for him to be thrown overboard. So uh, you're looking at, I mean, both, both of these cases, the, the effect and the, the energy, the very real working of these particular sins kind of plays out immediately in what it images in these men's lives. Now, Jonah was still a prophet and saint and still a man of God, and Cain becomes the archetypal man of sin, um, you know, throughout the, uh, throughout the temple period. But uh, the, the, the very real reality of sin is it seeks to make us an imager of the demonic, an imager of the rebellious and the envious and the subhuman, because all because by nature sin is below humanity. Christ takes our humanity; it is identical to ours, and he in all things but sin. Why? Because that is foreign to the human condition. It is beneath us. And the first thing that the devil wants us to do is believe that it's proper to us. Like, oh, I can't help it. I'm just human. No, 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 no. Don't say you're just human. That's that you're you're. You're selling yourself too short. We're called to be the image and likeness of God. That's what it means to be human. Um, and, and, you know, so so it, that, that's that's what we're looking at is the very real, the very real twisting of that image and the very real re-imaging by sin, the hijacking of that image to make human beings uh, image unnaturally the demonic forces it's a, if god invites us to theosis this is demonosis synosis whatever <laughs> i i think it would definitely be a discussion for another day because i could definitely rabbit trail on something that you said that i'm i'm a human this is natural to me i i hate that doctrine you know just because i sin doesn't make that a part of what I am by, by my very ontological nature. But anyway, that aside, I think, I think the juxtaposition of Jonah and Cain is nice because I think we see that they're almost like the two, two ends of, of the human experience. Either you, you have a, a Cain type uh, person who actually really, really looks like the demon that got a hold of them like really and truly like Legion, when Jesus encounters him out amongst the graves, naked, babbling, just a crazed uh, being, right? Or uh, some some people that you and I have encountered uh, on the streets, uh, homeless people, uh, so on and so forth, or uh, more like Jonah, 
the, the people that we see in our churches and in our own homes every day, people that are are normal air quotes normal but still fighting with with, with certain demonic powers in their lives and it and and they they don't they're not quite so apparent but they're definitely there and affecting how we live and what we do and we maybe not in quite such stark ways as as Cain or these other people do definitely start to look like the demons that we allow to be in our lives well look at i mean look at how look at how god intervenes with jonah i mean the, the ninevites aren't the only ones who are saved the being thrown overboard and and going into the belly of the beast for three days and then sitting under a plant and the plant dies and it's all salvific for jonah right like if god had allowed him to remain mired in his harsh unforgiveness i mean how would that not have been like Cain? Like it, 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 God did not allow. Well, that's the beauty there. Through that very harsh medicine, God saves this man through the trials that then he undergoes. And it's like, listen, but that's exercising that demon of, of harshness and judgmentalism from his life. Otherwise, if if Jonah had just been allowed to walk away, I mean, what manner of prophet would he be at that at that juncture? Like this is this is really God stepping in and saving this man from himself. It's it's pretty beautiful, but it does highlight that the the remedy can sometimes be bitter. And I mean, like we learn in Lent that that fasting without almsgiving is is empty. That sometimes the the very medicine that you need to overcome your sin is to go out and do the thing that you hate. Like, I mean, Jonah is not all that different than myself or many people that I know. Um, there's vast groups of people. I mean, I, how many how many people, Father Michael, in all honesty, do you know that look at uh, the homeless or the hobo or the person who uh, is drug addicted or uh, whatever, the poor people on the other side of the tracks that live in trailers and just kind of live uh, this kind of poverty life, we look at them and say, oh, well, if they weren't such dread sinners, God would, would have mercy on them and we just need to leave them to their own. I mean, are we any different than Jonah in that very moment? But it's perfectly normal and it's perfectly, it's perfectly acceptable to look at people that way or to have somebody walk up to you and say, I need some money. I'm hungry and say, I'm not going to give you any money because I know that you're going to go buy beer or drugs with that money or cigarettes. And I'm not going to enable you. That's very much in my mind. Maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. That's like Jonah getting on the boat and saying, no, go away. You will be dealt with and I'm good with you being dealt with. I'm walking away. Yeah. And the people who I've seen who, who, image God the best in those scenarios also have lives full of, uh, full of failure and, and suffering and hardship. Like when I, when you, like, if you want to, if, if you want, if you want to meet somebody who like love you unconditionally or pray for you or spend time with you, like if you want to meet that person real easy, go to a recovery meeting, like, right. People who have just hosed their lives up and had to pull it all together those are the first ones to understand the bind you're in, right? Because they've been there. They don't think they're better than it. They, they've been there. You know, talk to somebody who's, who's been, you know, you want to you wanna talk to someone about, like, getting your marriage together. Talk to someone who screwed theirs up. Like, I mean, people who, are, who have been through hell, who've been through death and had areas of their lives die and they survived and have to pick up the pieces, they tend to be full of mercy and compassion and help or very bitter. There's, there's nothing in between. You're, you're the, the, the lukewarm people are the ones who also don't see the failure in their own lives, don't self-reflect, and um, they do have that air of superiority. They don't make very good Christians in the same way that that Jonah wouldn't have made a very good prophet if God had let him off scot-free. And that's a lesson for all of us, because I think if we're really rigorously honest, we should all be able to look at our lives and say, I've been that guy at some points 
And sometimes I might still be that guy and that needs to be repented of. I mean, so like me, Father Michael, I'm saying this, but it applies to me. It definitely applies to me. I have so much harshness and rigidity in my own heart. And I, I still need to repent of it. And, you know, if I were to wait to have all of that finalized and done with before I tried to do anything with my life, I'd be dead and in the ground. So, you know, this process of repenting and casting out has to be, um, it has to be an on the move, on the go kind of exercise because, I mean, it's urgent, but life is happening. And, and that's where, it, that's where you look at the beauty of Hebrew grammar. And Hebrew grammar only has a past and a future tense. And so it's what I will be. Well, what I will be and what I am being, it's all, it's in motion, it's movement. And that's, that's how our repentance has to look. We are in movement. If we stop moving, we die. So in movement, how are we continually turning towards God? And I, I think that's, again, that's where, that's where your genuine repentance really comes in. Because when you're looking at these, uh, heck, uh, read the book of Psalms the whole way through. Like all of our listeners, all of you guys, pick five and a half hours where you don't need to do anything else and read the book of Psalms from start to finish. That's how long it'll take you. You're going to want to walk around while you do it because otherwise you will fall asleep. But what you're going to find when you do is that you go on this huge roller coaster and it, it seems like, you know, it, it's barely one Psalm where the Israelites are praising God and speaking of his glory. And in the very next Psalm, they're like, I am a worm and not a man. I'm crushed to the ground. Oh Lord, how long will you be silent? And then the next Psalm, the very hills are singing for his his praises and the next one they're being routed and defeated and uh, and it's this roller coaster and if you look and you get to the end and you feel like the liturgy is about to start because it's a big hot cosmic hymn of praise but you also get this sense of yeah man that's life this turning towards god is not a one and done one time deal this is a long lifelong slog to work out your salvation in fear and trembling or you look at St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, there is the law of sin is already at work in the world and it is in work in me. Because the good I wish to do, I do not do. And the evil that I wish not to do, that I do. That's the apostle Paul, the same guy who says, the same guy who says, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And, if, and, and this is the same guy. So guess what that means? It means that it's really not that simplistic. It means that it's a lifelong slog. It means that even this guy who says, it's not I live in, but Christ who lives in me also says, you know, the good that I wish to do, I can't accomplish it. And there's all this failure that I just keep rabbit trailing down. But God's mercy is bigger than that. And that's why he lives and dies an apostle, because his life continually turns to that. Um, and I, and, and, and that's why ultimately his life images Christ and not the demonic failures. That's, that's where the battle's taking place. It's taking, it, it's like, it's like a big car chase gun battle in a movie. It's taking place on the move, you know, and we're on the move in life and sin is battling it out and Christ is battling it out. And if we stop like Cain and let sin crouch and pounce, we're done. But in the continual repenting and turning in humility to Christ, we can image him who is the Akrata Pinosis, the great humility. That he that's one of the titles for Christ and one of the great icons of Holy Week. And that's who we become the image of. So flawlessness might be out of our reach, but humility isn't. And that's the one thing the demons can't imitate. But sin will first try to convince you to stop. Part of that movement is interesting because it's like sin doesn't stop, but these these demonic forces that we we relent to, that we turn ourselves over to, 
do a really good job of causing us to think that they are not who they are. And what do I mean by that? Um, I've, I've met people on the streets of, of New York City, in LA, Chicago, in, my, uh, in the past where they believe that they are something that they're not. Right. And we look at like, say, say you meet a person on the street and they say, I am, uh, I am a Mayan war god. You're going to look at that person and say, you are out of your mind and walk away. Most likely many of you, myself included. But then if you take a moment and say, that's interesting. Why? Right. I mean, I know a person similar to that. And this person as a child was abused. And this, this identity, this Mayan war god identity come came alongside of the abuse and the wanting the abuse to stop. So this demon comes in and possesses this person and causes the person to believe that they are the savior, the helper the kind one that helps them through the pain of life. And then all of a sudden you have a person who for 30 years has been possessed, but they rely on that demon for their strength. Or I rely on my Xbox for my relaxation. Is that necessarily wrong? No. But is there a part of my life that's starting to take on and in a a worshipful way, uh, the presence of something that is not God? Yes. Is that neutral? We've we've said this before, absolutely not. So one is completely socially normal and doesn't have real big, high or low identifying marks of where the evil is. It's, it's a slower burn, a less discernible burn. But on the other hand, we're so used to just saying, you know, these people are clearly unstable and they should be on medication or in a home and we'll just leave them there so we don't have to deal with them. But part of, part of the running aspect of, of repentance and this life is, is when we're repenting, we are relying on Christ for our rest, for our salvation, for our strength, for our protection. But these demons can most certainly cause us to believe that they are our protection, that they are our defenders, that they are the valiant ones, that they are the light bringers, that they can protect us from certain things and that we need them, even though they would never come out and say that they're demons. But they they elicit these sorts of emotions that cause us to be drawn to them. And that was one of the the images that Tolkien depicted so beautifully in Smeagol, because Smeagol, when he killed his friend, ran. He was scared. And then where would you see this progression of of a of a person who becomes possessed by Gollum, and Gollum is his defender. Gollum is his protector, even though he drove him out into the wilderness, into the mountains, like we said earlier, eating raw fish and just being animal in his existence, that Smeagol came to see Gollum as his defender. He didn't go back to his village and repent. He fled into the arms of a different protector and was cut off and became less than human, like you said. It's not that we are that, that sin causes us to be less than who we are. And that's something that I think that we all have to be on, we all need to be aware of and need to be through, through the presence of the Holy Spirit and prayer working out in our lives. Is like, where do I find my comfort in things that are not God? Where, where is my hope? Where is my trust? And how do I interact with the world versus God? And where are, where are the demons actively pulling me away and causing me to be reflective of something that is not Jesus Christ, but rather very worldly or otherworldly? Well, you know, in addition to that, I mean, yeah, I understand sin is always, the demonic is always going to come with a great deal of very reasonable justifications and, and that's a thing you go you look at i mean look back at cain well i mean in the interest of justice 
that wasn't fair. Let's make justice. Let's let's get what's rightfully ours. Um, you know, and and when the envy, when the violence of envy takes hold of you, um, the scales are never balanced. There's never enough. It's it's insatiable. But you don't know that. Um, or lust. I mean, you look at David. I mean, heck, man. I mean, you are the king. Why can't you have Bathsheba? And it's not adultery if she's not married, and she's not married if her husband is dead. I mean, but that's the absolute insanity of sin to where that could be a line of thought. Like, think about that, where that's an actual line of thought that that convinces you that it's a reasonable course of actions to go upon. Like, it's absolute insanity. Um, and, And that's, but that's what sin does. It presents to you, it presents to you justifications that on paper are, have varying degrees of uh, convincingness, but in your mind, you're able to rationalize it. And the, it is very rare to have anyone trapped in, in imaging the demonic nature of any of these sins that somehow still doesn't believe that they're also an okay person. They're still the good guy. <laughs> because to, to see oneself as anything other than the good guy would mean to have to repent and to see and to take accountability for what you did. You still believe you're the good guy. And so the sin has to provide that rationalization because you can't see yourself as the villain because otherwise you'd have to either embrace the darkness, which is very unlikely, very few people knowingly do that, or you would have to repent and then you would no longer image the demons. So like they, they've really got to get you down in believing that, hey, there's this looks horrible, but there's a, a justification for it. Uh, interestingly enough, when you're looking at the church canons, uh, there are, and, and I don't want to go down this rabbit trail because it'll get us off topic, but there are church canons that put penance on certain things that are regrettable but unavoidable in life, like not in life, but in certain scenarios, you know. So, so we're 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 recognizing that the lesser of two evils is still an evil. We're, we're saying, hey, that still wasn't... We, we, we might be able to look and say, we get why you had no choice to do X, Y, or Z, but let's not make excuses for it and call it good. Let's st- Even if we say it was necessary, let's still recognize it as evil. Because to call it necessary and not recognize that it was evil um, robs us of our humanity. So even when we end up in some kind of horrible scenario and we've got to do things that we still need to bring before God, like at least we, we call them for what they are. I didn't have any good choices. So let's not pretend the choices that I had before me were good. And then we repent of that too. Not because we didn't do what we had to do, but because let's be honest about what we're looking at. And that rigorous honesty Um, is something that sin actively does not want in our lives because then we would stop imaging it. And I'm speaking of sin as as a very real personal thing. That's the way Scripture treats it. That's the way Jesus treats it. It's not some, you know, it's not a legal category. This is a a malevolent, illegitimate spiritual force that wants you dead and is a progressive and fatal illness. Yeah, and... It is, it is a malevolent entity that wants us dead. And it doesn't, I don't really think that the devil particularly cares how he gets you there. Whether it's the slow burn of a periodic anger that goes unchecked and recognized in your life that's compl- in a completely normal context in, in our modern world or ignoring the poor. And, uh, you know, to paraphrase St. Basil, that that you do have a, a multitude of coats uh, rotting in your closet that you have stolen from the poor. Um, 
the, the slow burn of, of, of lukewarmness, like you said, or if it's debilitating mental illness that drags you there, that, that most people can't see the sin that is involved or the demonic that is involved there, but just write it off as a chemical imbalance or anything in between the we have to be on the ready to 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 ask for God's grace and his mercy in our lives to to have a spiritual awareness to see the sin and a willingness to repent of it and also to have people in our lives that are willing to call us out and say yo bro <laughs> you need to check yourself man um that what you're doing is not godly and well, and it, it, it's worth saying, sorry to jump in, but it's worth saying that within orthodoxy, the view of what sin is, it, it's, it's broader and more holistic. We're not just talking about like, hey, you're doing something wrong. Like that, it's not that, uh, that moral and, and it's not that external. What it ultimately is, is this is breaking the covenant between you and God. This is putting a wedge between you and God and you and your neighbor. Um, and, and so it's, so it's not just, well, you're breaking some law. It's like, no, it, something is off here and it's, it's driving a wedge between you and the very source of life itself. And, you know, and that, and, and, and maybe it could be something that for someone else wouldn't do that, but in your case it is, um, or it's maybe the way you're handling it. Um, you know, and so when we're, when we use sin in, in, in terms of, in connection with other conditions or situations or this or that, it doesn't necessarily, we're not necessarily speaking of a moral culpability insofar as that you're seeing the spiritual illness progress and begin to decay and erode um, the very real covenant between ourselves and life, ourselves and God, ourselves in, in, in the most holy trinity. Um, and you're hundred percent correct the, the, the devil doesn't, he, he's happy. He's happy to, he's happy to get us to hell any way he can get us there. If he has a preference, it'd be with the maximum possible damage, but he's just happy to see our downfall. Um, but yeah, so I, I want to clarify that. Like when we're talking about sin, we're not necessarily saying, Oh, you find yourself in this situation because you're doing bad things. Maybe, maybe not. But the real problem is, is that you are now out of covenant with the most high God. And because of that, the situation will only get worse, not better until you address it. True. That's true. And that's a nice distinction to make. I've had people tell me that um, like St. Porfirios or St. Paisios or the holy men that they know uh, personally or, or the saints of, of the past um, humbly said that they were sinners so almost implying that those holy men were lying. But I, I don't, I think that for these holy men and women, when they said that there were sinners, it's a recognition that when, you know, to use the Greek term, armartia to sin, is to miss the mark, right, Father? And what is the mark? The mark is perfection. So anytime I have a flaw in my thought, I have a flaw in my action, I have a flaw in something that I say or do, Anytime there's even a, a, a minuscule flaw, I've fallen short. And I think that these people could, like St. Paul could say that he was a chief among sinners because he had become so close to Christ that he started to see that just how short he fell from absolute perfection, which is God alone. So any if you are not perfectly perfect throughout the day, you're falling short. And... That's not something moral that I do, that it's open, like you said, but it's, it calls us into a place where we, it's calling us towards Jesus Christ. This shouldn't, I mean, if you fall into a place of, of depression and despondency because of what I'm saying, uh, we need to work on that. That sort of thing is to, to draw us into the eternal perfection that we were called to, which is Jesus Christ himself. And then to also see the malevolence in the world that would tear us, tear us away from that. And in those moments of sin, see what it is that is promised to the demons and to run like crazy from it. <laughs> to run away from hell 
and towards heaven in Jesus Christ, our humble and resurrected Lord. Yeah, and I mean, you know, when Christ gives us commands, it, it means that those commands can be fulfilled. So when he says, be you perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and that word there is telios. And telios is to be whole, complete, lacking in nothing, right? I mean, you know, to be steadfast, patient, love, all of these things. And it means that that mark is one that we're called to and one that we can actually attain and aspire to. Now, yes, we may only finish getting there in the age to come. However, comma, it, you know, it's the continual turning towards that road, that continual keeping of covenant with the Most High, that restoring of the covenant when we break it. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, that's, that's the difference. And the thing is that humility, humility and repentance Humility and repentance images the great humility of Christ more than our sins image the demons. That's why turning to him in repentance is so powerful. That's why turning to him in humility is so powerful, because it is a greater image. If we stay mired in our in our failures and sins, then then yeah, we 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 image what the demons put out there. But the but what they don't want us to know is it's very voluntary. You don't have to do that. You're under no compulsion to do that. You could, you could image Christ even more powerfully. And in fact, um, you know, there, there's great evidence that, you know, that for, for the, the deeper where, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And as Joseph's Joseph would say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. I mean, the story of Joseph is so powerful because what God worked in his life in the midst of him keeping the covenant was more powerful than his brother's murderous sin. And it was more powerful than the, the intended sin of Potiphar's wife. Well, again, but Joseph's virtue really only shines because their darkness, which was overcome, was also pretty black. I mean, having your brothers throw you, plot to kill you, and then just decide, now nah, we'll sell you into slavery instead, and having some woman try to seduce you, Potiphar's wife, and then when you say no, she falsely accuses you and makes sure you're thrown into prison. Um, like, those are, re that, those are really bad things. Those are, that's a really awful so many years before things get good and again joseph without without the juxtaposition of, of that evil the brightness of grace that god works in joseph's life just wouldn't stand in so sharp relief so when we turn in repentance when we turn in humility it makes that possible in our own lives so uh, how we've failed is really a very secondary importance, if, if at all. Um, it's, do, will we turn with equal or greater fervency towards the most high God? And if we'll do that, then indeed, grace will abound even more than sin did. And we'll see the real powerlessness of the devil in the face of Christ. Right. I like that. I like, I was thinking the, the same thing before you said it is that where that, where that sin is when it's erratic. Words. Sorry. The same thing in the exact same words, I'm sure. Better, better words. <laughs> better. Definitely. Clearly. I mean, duh. <laughs> but, but that, that where, where sin abounds, there's room, not that we should sin more like Paul says, but that that's where grace abounds as well. Is that is that as those saints got a clearer, I have a get clearer and clearer idea of how far they are from being what they were created to be and what Christ calls us to be. They repented more, and in that repentance, the grace was able and is able to cover those sins and and purify us more and more. It's that it's the interplay between recognition, repentance, and grace that that allows us to continuously move forward in the Christian life. Vis a vis being proud, 
unrepentant and moving away from that intended grace. But I have a question for you. Um, how, how, how should I phrase it? We see in Job's life, the, the St. Job, that the devil was going throughout the world looking, and he's standing before the throne of God, and he says, I want Job. But you have a hedge around Job. If the hedge wasn't there, I would destroy him. So that implies that the devils do not have unlimited access to human beings, that, that God is sovereign, and that what we endure from the demonic to some degree is limited or allowed by, by a sovereign God. And then if that's true, then how, how should we understand the people around us that are in, in this sort of really like people who are possessed, for example, to go to the furthest extreme who are actually possessed by demons. How, how should we understand them in that light? And is that demon present for their, their salvation and the salvation of other people? I don't know, but I have that question. Well, I think so it's hard to answer because there's a lot we don't know. I'm very right. clear in Job's story. It's that you have you have two things happening in Job's story. You have the omniscient God and you have the omniscient audience. Like we know, like nobody on the ground in Job's story, not Job, not his wife, not his buddies, none of them know the relevant backstory that makes the events make sense. At no point does God reveal it to him. He doesn't, he gets to, he gets everything restored to him and gets to the end of a very good life uh, still not really knowing why all of that happened. Um, it's just God vindicates him at the end of it. And even when he gets face to face with God, he still doesn't get an answer. So it's hard for me to look at someone who's possessed and say, somehow, um, somehow, like the whys and wherefores and whats. It, I just, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable saying I'm not comfortable appraising other people's afflictions because I don't have the knowledge that God has. What I can say is that with the scripture says that God works all things for good for those who love him. So when things, when tragedy is allowed in our lives, it can still be salvific. It can still be the road by which God works salvation in our lives in some form that we may just not be able to make sense of in the here and now. And I, I, I hesitate because I, I know too many people with too many awful tragedies that I just wouldn't want to um, diminish by trying to make, you know, brush it off with a soundbite. But some of that in this life is going to be a mystery. How does this work? How does this relate to this person's salvation, this person's life with Christ? Some of that just remains beyond our pay grade in this life. And, and I have to accept that in the age to come, it might make sense. Um, in the age to come, Job might get it like, okay. And he might even get like why he didn't get to know what, you know, and there's probably more to that story than even the reader knows. I mean, this is just what we need, what we need for our salvation. So what, what, what else is there? Uh, and, and we just don't have the ability to praise that. I think what we do is we, we can continually point people back to Christ and get them to look and say, all right, well, how do we, how do we get, how do we love Christ so that all these things, even these terrible things work for the good. Um, and that's, that's within our purview, but it, it's really hard to assess. And uh, I, I mean, you know, again, uh, I think if I think if you try to say the minute you say to someone, "Oh, this bad thing happened in your life because of X, Y, and Z," even if they kind of accept that at first, it runs into some it runs into some real limitations. Well, then why not this or why that or why did it have to? And I, we just don't know. Um, but we know that 
we know that tragedy is real and evil is real and suffering is real and demons are real and sin is real. And we don't have all the whys and wherefores. What we do have are the tools to do something about it. Um, and that lies within our scope. So that's where I like to focus. Uh, I do know that when St. Paisios talks about his vision of St. Ephemia, she tells him that if she had known, she was martyred, and she says if she had known the joys and delights of paradise, she would have gladly undergone what she went through a dozen times because it was worth it. And to me, that bespeaks of the hope that somehow in eternity, this stuff will be made sense of in some way that we're not left wanting. Beyond that, I, you know, that's, what, what else can I say that's within my pay grade, you know? Nothing. Um, I'm not looking for an answer that, that is a salve to my soul or that explains away all the suffering in my life, but really trying to, to tease out how, how we can make sense of this sort of thing to, to whatever degree possible in the world, A, and, and B, uh, find some really practical boots on the ground ways to deal with, with this sort of demonic oppression in our lives that, that, I might look like the demon who oppresses me and I don't even recognize it. It's just, I, I think that it is who I am. You know, I, I've, I've sold out so much that, well, that's just part of who I am. That's part of my, my character. It's part of my, uh, just what I am, maybe not who I am, but also what I am and how to deal with that, how to eradicate it if I don't see it. And then, and to make sense of a world where, where some people where we can look at people who are really, 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 really suffer and question the existence of God in the place of that suffering or in the place in these places where it doesn't look like he is at all, like St. Ephemia. Like how how do you see God in that place except to remember that at the end of the day that he alone is sovereign and there's nothing nothing that happens within the created or uncreated space that that is his that happens uh, without his knowledge and in many ways uh, without going too far without his um, allowing it into whatever whatever that looks like yeah i i think you know i think a good way of identifying what demons and what we're imaging and what sins we're imaging is to look at like what we would what we would walk away from christ for and there there's a lot of that actually like talk to people who well talk to people who like they they don't want to they don't want to go to church well why well i don't want anything to do with christianity because and it's it's usually like it's very rarely you don't see people walk away from church they're like well i can't wrap my my mind around the the interpenetration of the humanity and divinity in christ or uh i believe that uh, I believe that a uh, you know that adoptionism is more theologically defendable. Like like you don't hear that. That's not what they say. People walk away from Christianity. They're like, well, Christianity doesn't let me do this thing that I want to do, and I really want to do it. So God stops being real because you want to do this thing. So what like what's more important? And and what's really funny is all of the characteristics of whatever that sin is, you see that start to play out in those people's lives. Like it starts to like the, all of their behavior or, um, you know, I really I don't go to church because I have this in my life and I really want to. Do, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, but there's this variety of things that we are willing or even or even like I, I don't want to get even even right down to just sloth and not getting up in the morning. And then well, where else are we lazy in our lives? Because I don't, you know, so what you're really looking at is you're really looking at at any given moment, like what we're willing, what we're willing to sell Jesus out for, to trade Jesus out in our lives for, gives us a really good look at what we're actually going to image. Because if we believe he is who we say he is, and we believe God is who we say he is, and that the faith is what we say it is, 
then none of those things matter that way. Then then there really shouldn't be anything that we'd be willing to set him aside for. But think about how much we pander to that as priests. You know, like we we couch our words or we we're we're careful about what we say or how do we act to things because so and so might not come back to church or oh that we could really rub someone wrong. Really? Like so what are they at church for? Are they at church for so that they can just feel like, you know, coddled and happy? Or are they here for Jesus? Like, I mean, like we're we're really pandering to this very fragile thing that says at any minute, this loyalty to Christ could just be traded in for something bigger and better. We'll never get them back. Well, then did you really have them at all? That's where their loyalty already lies. If their loyalty already lies there, then Jesus isn't their God. This other thing is their God. Um, I mean, it could be as much as like, I remember one person said to me once, he's like, you know, you know, when, when I, if I can't, if I don't, like there were, there were an old timer at a parish and uh, parish had gone from being a really small parish to a super big parish. He's like, you know, if I can't recognize, if I don't know, if I ever don't know people at church, like just nobody, like if I don't have anybody I know, I just, I wouldn't come back to church. I'm like, what are you here for? I didn't say to him because I was still pandering, right? Well, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, then why are you here? Like, what difference does it make if you know people? That's not why you're here. You're not showing up for them. You're showing up for him. But what's your God? Was your God the social thing? Is your God the 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 communal community connection? And like all evil, you're taking something that is basically good and pushing it too far. Because having a familial social connection at church is objectively a good thing. Those are objectively good things. Knowing people at church and having that community is a good thing. Those are objective goods. But it's only relatively good. It stops being good if that is more important than being there for Christ. It stops being good if that's why you're there. And Christ is only a detail. Then we've stopped being a church. And we have priests, we pander to that sometimes. And it's 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 spiritually deadly. So, um, you know, like, look, if we look at what those items are, we'll, we'll see who we're really imaging pretty quick. Okay. I think you're right. I, like, what, what are we willing to exchange Christ for? But then there's other things that are more... I think like for myself, just because I, I, I know myself pretty relatively well, like there, there's times that, you know, we go to church on, on Sunday and on holidays and whatever. So that's one day a week. What, what do I do the other six days a week that I may or may not recognize? Because I'm not, I'm not at the, I'm not in a place where I'm having to choose Jesus or not because morally and civically I go to church every Sunday and uh, by and large, I'm not willing to exchange Jesus on Sunday morning at all. But what am I willing to exchange Jesus for throughout the week where I, where it doesn't even really ever come down to that, where I'm either choosing Jesus or to go to a baseball game or watch a baseball game on TV or choosing Jesus or um, whatever, right? So I don't think it's always that easy either. I, I think... Um, and in that place, personally, what I what I have to do is where it seems neutral, where it doesn't seem like I'm choosing Jesus or I'm not choosing Jesus. What I what I have found recently that I need to do is what we mentioned earlier about about Lent. It's like fasting without almsgiving is dead. So if if it's cool just to sit and watch a baseball game. Uh, and it, rather than be, you know, doing something else, what would, what would be the, what would be almsgiving in that context? Right. So how would I give an alm? How would I give alms instead of sitting in t- front of the television? That would mean that I would need to actually engage with the people in my life that I would need to engage with. Uh, if, if you have a calling to, to engage with the poor, to engage in some sort of charitable work, engage in prayer, engage in 
in my spiritual gift that, that God has given me to some degree in order to, to combat that complacency, like to actually get up and actively move toward him when it doesn't seem like I'm in a place where I'm choosing him or not. Well, you know, so as right, uh, I, I can't paint it. I'm trying not to paint it simplistically because it's not simplistic. Um, you know, the, so I, I, that's why, that's why this continual moving towards him, this continual turning towards him is, is important because it's not that simple. It's not a soundbite. Soundbite doesn't work. Um, you know, even the divine name, you know, right? Like, you know, Yahweh, he who causes to be, it's, it's a continual future thing. That's the part of speech that it sits in. So it's, again, who, who are, who are we being? And maybe that, that seeing that, see that, that continuous sense there R is sort of fixed, not just who we are, but who are we being? Well, you know, that's because we're, we're, because we're in this fallen fluctuating state of time, we've got to take a continual look at that. Who are we being? Who are we imaging? Who are we being in covenant with? And, and I guess what I'm my, my real point is not that you're necessarily going to get that all okay every day. Because I mean, I don't like right now. I'm 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 recording. Uh, I, you know, like even t- just this morning, like there are certainly better uses for my time, right? Like I skipped some prayers that I really should get done today. You know, so it's like. Ooh, could I do better? Absolutely. But, so my point is this continual reorienting of our lives back towards him is just something that we can't put our feet up and feel like we're done on. It's like, no, no, this is this is this continual thing. But that's where how we, as St. Paul says, with fear and trembling work out our own salvation. That's why scripture says that. But if but that's where the and, and in the grace of Christ, even in not doing that flawlessly. In the grace of Christ, we can still image Him, regardless. Like it, it, that's that's the beauty of it, is that okay? Uh, the imaging is not flawless, and yet His grace is bigger than that. And all He asks us is to be steadfast. So, remain steadfast. I mean, so that there you go. So I I, I think that's I think that's it. It's not it's not that it's simplistic. It's just that. The only way to really do that is to be just rigorously honest, like, hey, how far how far off the mark am I and where? And if we're attentive to the, all these little wares, where we stand a better chance with the big ones. Um, you know, because you have been faithful over a little, I will give you charge over much, as the Gospels say. Indeed. So uh, another... Another thing that happens in my life that I, I personally have to be aware of is that like in my life, I'm often called, uh, often reminded that I, I have a responsibility for the poor. And to just say that I have a responsibility of the poor seems to suffice regularly without me actually doing anything for the poor. So uh, I need to get out and actually participate in the lives of the poor in, in our community. And when I do that, I also need to be very cognizant of my pride that when I'm in their, in their context, when I'm in their milieu, that I need to be aware of my own spirit in that moment and that I'm not placing myself above them or looking down upon them or questioning their motives or whatever, but accepting them as they are. And if by God's grace, I'm able to do that when I'm with them, then there is, there, there is this genuine recognition of their humanity and and my humanity is being equal. And that, that's a beautiful equalizer is to see these people who live on the street as being my equal and not, ha- not being in a place at my house or here uh, in my office where I'm just thinking about them and, oh, poor souls. Oh, Lord, have mercy on those poor, stupid, 
reckless people who have just squandered their lives. Lord, just please have mercy on them. No, it's it's an actual participation in in my own being and the in the being of others to continue to use these participles. And that's an important way that each of us can combat the imaging that's happening in our souls is to actually participate in what God called us through our baptisms and by his spirit to participate in is to actually participate in him in the way that he created us to participate. So he calls me for whatever reason to, to be with the poor. I don't know why he's done that for years. And often I ignore him and just take on this persona of a, a great guy that, that loves the poor. And, but when come push comes to shove, I ignore them and leave them alone. Which well, is, yeah, but look at look at look at how much even just the judgment that we put on the poor. Let's just say, look look how much of the sentence ends up being outside out of our pay grade, outside of our purview. You say, oh, these the these poor, destitute, foolish. We don't know that they're foolish. You don't know they're stupid. You don't even know that they made bad choices. Uh, plenty of people. I mean, even like even looking at addicts. Plenty of people are addicted to drug and alcohol who are supremely intelligent, maybe financially very successful. Um, these are not, you know, by and large, these are not dumb people. These are not unintelligent people. If it were a matter of smarts, a whole lot of addicts wouldn't be addicts if it were just a matter. And it's not a matter of being undisciplined for as a matter of intelligence and discipline. There's a whole lot of people who wouldn't be addicts. Um, and same thing with being out on, uh, on the streets. You know, the reality is we're only, we're only a couple of any one of us is only a couple of really bad days away from being someone we would look down at. I mean, you know, like we, you have no idea. It's some financial downturn, like someone and could end up on the street. Why? They had a corrupt business partner who stole all their money and took their wife. I mean, you don't know. There's, you don't know and you can't appraise it. And then it broke them mentally because, you know, their dad walked out on them when they were little and they couldn't. I mean, they're, they're the combination of things that go into someone being under a bridge you don't know. And God doesn't ask you to know. That's the thing. We expend our mental energy on the wrong places because he doesn't ask us to know. He doesn't ask us to get it. He doesn't ask us to comprehend it. He does ask us to be kind, loving, merciful, and do something about it. It's not your business to appraise how they got there or what they might do with your beneficence. God asks you to be benevolent. And then how they respond to that, whether they're responsible for it or not, it's not your business. That's his business and their business. Your business is to do the good that's within your purview, to image Christ as lies with you. That's, that's your business. And because we don't handle our business very well, we don't like looking at our business. But the reality of, oh, well, how did this guy get there and what's he going to do with my help? It's not your problem. Your problem is what are you going to do in the face of it? And at least like you're doing, at least be honest enough to say, you know, I don't, I don't get that. I don't do the right thing in the face of that as often as I ought to. And that's, that's honest. And that's good. But if I don't get to that point where I'm, it's like, if, if I, I don't know how to say it. I, I, by God's grace, I'm able to look at like, hear my own inner dialogue at times, not always, but at times and realize how flawed it is. And that if I'm ignoring the poor, that I'm imaging the demon that would have those poor die without love and Christ and understanding in their lives. Just leave them poor and destitute on the streets alone, conflicted, abused, and very much like Jonah in a place that's completely acceptable to many, but entirely unacceptable to my Christ. Well, and you got it. You've got to look and say, well, like, why is it acceptable? Well, if I believe that this person is really the image and likeness of God, what's acceptable? And 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 that should humble us. So I mean, I, I you know, I, I I can barely, I can barely keep that in mind with my wife and kids. How am I supposed to keep that in mind with a stranger? You know, I, it, so it's it should humble us a bit. But um, I, I think for today, let's uh, let's leave our, our our listeners with kind of the with the imperative to strive by Christ's grace to keep that in mind to 
be more attentive to who we're imaging, how we're imaging, and seeing the persons that we interact with, you know, whether they're strangers or loved ones, indeed as the very image and likeness of God. It's easy to think that about ourselves, but let's see that as them. And by his grace, we may come to image sin less. Amen. Uh, thank you, Father, for recording today. Why don't you remind everybody where they can find us? Yes, uh, Anchor FM. They can find us on Anchor FM, our main hosting site, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and on social media, on the Battlefield Podcast, uh, Facebook, and Instagram as well. And there's a lot of other related content on the Facey space, so you can check that out. Sweet. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us again, and God's grace and his strength out there as you fight on the battlefield. Mm-hmm.